My interest in objects has been an intuitive curiosity. Everything that's not contemporary that I have connects me to someone. Even the indigenous artisans that I work with, I'm, I feel connected to them. From NYC by Design, this is The Mic, a podcast that offers an inside look into New York City's most creative minds. I'm your host, Debbie Melman. From projects to products, inspirations, and more, join us each month as I talk to members of New York City's design community about what makes design so outstanding. This season, we're inviting our audience to lend their voices to each episode. We'll be talking to established and emerging designers and asking you, our listeners, to share your design questions and anecdotes. As part of this theme, we're excited to introduce the Mike Hotline, a voice mailbox where you share your design stories and we listen. Each month, NYC by Design will share prompts hinting at Mike guests, design themes, and discussion topics, inviting you to call and leave a voicemail at 804-592-0412 for a chance to have your story featured in an upcoming Mike episode. Today, we're talking about the objects that populate our lives, one of my favorite topics, the stories they tell, and the motivations behind the act of collecting these objects. Take a moment and look around your home or office or studio. What objects surround you? How did you acquire them? Why do you choose to keep them? The furniture, decorative goods, tools, and miscellaneous items that inhabit our personal spaces often feel like an extension of ourselves that help us tell the story of our lives. On this episode of The Mic, we're speaking to two New Yorkers who have dedicated their lives to collecting and utilizing objects to tell stories. I'm so excited to be joined today by Alexandra Cunningham Cameron, Curator of Contemporary Design at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, and Tian Trice, founder at Of The Cloth a design shop with locations in Brooklyn's Crown Heights and Rockefeller Plaza in Manhattan. Today, we're going to explore concepts such as material culture, acquisition, and curation, and discuss what objects communicate to us beyond just the aesthetic. My first guest is Alexandra Cunningham Cameron. Alexandra is an internationally recognized curator, writer, and critical thinker on contemporary design. She currently sits as Curator of Contemporary Design and Heinz Secretarial Scholar at Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, formerly Editor-in-Chief of Independent Arts Journal, the Miami Rail, and Creative Director of the Design Miami Fairs. Cameron has organized a broad range of exhibitions, publications, and programs that examine the role of design in shaping contemporary values. She has collaborated with Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, National Museum of African American History and Culture, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Financial Times, and Vogue, among many, many others. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you for joining us today. I'd like to begin by diving into your experience with curation. And I'm wondering if you could speak a bit about the role of a curator within a museum and maybe share some misconceptions about what a curator does and doesn't do. 
You know, <laughs> Debbie, I often think that people have this idea that curators are sitting in this rarefied space making judgments and selections. I think of 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 curators as, as being somewhere in between an event producer, a psychiatrist, a personal assistant, an investigative journalist. Um, Firefighter. <laughs> I mean, we, we do what it takes to get the job done, for sure. But logistically speaking, we're primarily responsible for what I would say the acquisition and interpretation of objects. But I also think of curators as being responsible for caring for the people who make the objects and making sure to do our best to document and and represent the significance of the work. You know, we're we're advocates. We want to push forward the ideas of the artists and and activists that that we care about. Your job title is Curator of Contemporary Design. And I'm wondering if you can share what your definition of contemporary design is. I think of design in the broadest, really an, an aesthetic movement towards function, um, a movement towards function that's tied up with form, beauty, a progressive outcome. You describe your background and path to being a curator as less than typical. You don't come from the traditional academic training curators often have. Can you tell us a little bit about the path you took to get here and how it has served you as an asset? I definitely took an intuitive path to becoming curator at a Smithsonian institution. So I've always loved art and design, but pursued literary studies. And, you know, I was interested in what makes people tick really, how the world and language shapes experience. And, you know, after getting my master's, I sort of had a decision to make, you know, whether to continue on and get my PhD and sort of, you know, live in an academic space or to to translate my interest in how the world shapes people into something that was maybe more tactile or three-dimensional. Alexandra, you work for the Smithsonian, which carries a strong responsibility to tell the story of the United States through objects. And these stories at times can be difficult to tell, but it is important to do so. As a curator of contemporary design, you're curating objects that were made pretty recently. What's the process of acquisition? How do you decide what the museum actually acquires? On the contemporary design side of things, um, we have currently two different processes for acquiring objects. And at some point they sort of intersect. Uh, one is relatively new and the other one is totally codified. It's been around for a long time. In, in the codified version, curators identify and research an object. We make the justifications for why it should be acquired. We have to be prepared with an argument. We look at the object with the conservators and understand how we're going to have to commit to caring for the object uh, long term, because typically, you know, an object acquisition is for life. We want to think about, you know, how it's going to stand up to the elements and, you know, be relevant a hundred years from now. And then we present it to a committee for formal approval. Uh, sometimes funds need to be raised. And this, this whole process can take a year, two years. Sometimes, you know, curators are looking for a particular 
object and, and it, it could take five years to find it. But we also have another process at, at Cooper Hewitt that came about through conversations with colleagues during um, the pandemic period when the museum was shut down. And, you know, m- many institutions and the Smithsonian throughout its history has responded to urgent events through, you know, what's now sort of called rapid response collecting, going out on the street. This could be collecting a protest poster or a piece of a fire truck from 9-11, one of the first responders' fire trucks. And what Cooper Hewitt said that we we don't just want curators to be out there identifying odd come into the collection. We want to have a group discussion with everyone who's working for the museum. And we want everyone to nominate objects that speak to how designers, but also people are dealing with issues, you know, like the global pandemic, the environmental crisis. At the time that we we sort of launched this initiative, which is called the Responsive Collecting Initiative, it was right before the 2020 election. And so we've engaged in this sort of community process of, of nomination and then you know, moving objects through that sort of more formal approval process for acquisition. How do you deem that an object is significant and will remain significant in the years to come and is therefore worthy of acquisition? I mean, there's there's so many ways to answer the question and, and all of the answers really involve a, a, a large degree of subjectivity, to be completely frank. Um, you know, this reasons why there is so much um, sort of pushback around the history of acquisitions and institutions presenting a certain set of values because most of the people have been totally homogenous and have been pushing forward in some cases really particular agendas. But I think that how we value and perceive an object depends on each of our own unique set of experiences, you know, and there really isn't an authority on determining the significance of the thing. This idea, I think, has begun to blossom in in museum spaces recently, an appreciation for the fact that this process, you know, does involve expertise, but also subjectivity. When I look at an, an object and try to evaluate its significance, I'm thinking about it from a variety of perspectives, how and with what it was made, what it symbolizes, like or unlike other similar objects, what expertise produced it, who made it and why, what its impact is, is it influencing in some way? You know, a good example is an object that we just co-acquired, the National Museum of American History and Cooper Hewitt. And this is one of the, the prototype sexual assault investigation kits from the 1970s. We So it's a have, rape kit, right? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yes, exactly. It's an early rape kit that was designed by a woman named Marty Goddard, who was trying to develop a system for intervening and formalizing the process of investigation. Um, for sexual assault survivors. What's interesting about how two museums come together to acquire something is that we're interested in telling the story of this object from different perspectives, from the design perspective. You know, Marty is designing a system out of, you know, basically off-the-shelf, easily accessible objects that come with a map for their use from a historical perspective. You know, what was happening at the time in Chicago in the 1970s that inspired her to 
need to develop this system and interview lawyers and doctors and, and survivors in a way that coming together of stories and understanding and, and context describes the significance and this importance. And so in thinking about what makes something significant, all of those different factors come into play. Well, an object like that is it's an incredible find. The, the earliest test kit, and now that test kit has saved hundreds of thousands of lives and protected people. And that's incredible, truly incredible. Alexandra, a term that, that I've been hearing a lot in relation to art design and curation is the term material culture. I was wondering if you could, I know I'm asking you to define a lot of words today. I'm wondering if you can define design objects as we live with material culture. Can you define what material culture is and then whether or not all design objects are part of that culture? I think so. I mean, I really think of material culture in a really sort of straightforward way, you know, that these are the, the objects and the excess around us that help define who we are, where we've come from, where we're going. It's, you know, maybe a fancy way of just saying, you know, the person-made world around us. And do you think that objects have a conceptual lifetime? Do you think that they're the relevance of something or do you think that once something is sort of deemed relevant, it stays relevant by the sheer virtue of it being relevant in that moment in time? Potentially. You know, I, I think that relevancy is something that is a result of someone saying that the thing is relevant, mm. right? And describing what impact it has had and why it is important. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why what museums collect and how is when something enters into an institutional collection, this is something that, you know, has a historical significance, material significance, and, and we will care for it in, in perpetuity, right? How it is described, how is it interpreted, how it is contextualized allows for people to understand what it means, tell a story of relevancy and significance around that thing. And in many cases with Cooper Hewitt's collection, you know, we have many everyday objects, hold up a magnifying glass and, and tell the story of what it means for this object to have been a part of the world at this time. I mean, that storytelling, I think, is, is ultimately what helps people make a connection and, and is important. Thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. I'd love for you to stick around. We're going to bring in Tian Trice for a bit of a conversation, and then I'd love to have you come back so the three of us can talk. I'm very excited to introduce Tian Trice, a spatial designer, collector, and founder at Of The Cloth, a showroom with locations in Rockefeller Center and Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and listeners. Full transparency here, I'm a huge fan of this store. Uh, Tian has been collecting curiosities and rarefied objects since the age of 15. His career began in antiques and has grown to include brand development, design, and sourcing. Over the last decade, most specifically, Tian's design philosophy has been distilled. As he sees it, the purpose of design and art 
is not merely aesthetic. When practiced with a clear intention, it possesses healing properties imbued into the space and its inhabitants. And I can't wait to talk to him about this. Tian, thank you so much for joining us today here at The Mic. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by discussing your background in design. What does your path to where you are now look like? How did you get here? My path pretty much started in middle school. I was obsessed with HGTV of the past, 90s HGTV and design shows that were a lot more educational. So I pretty much found myself running home every day after school to like watch Designing for the Sexes or, you know, This Old House. And the thing that weaved together all of the shows was objects and the collecting of object. And around 15, I, you know, pretty much told myself that would be the entry point. You're still in school. Your parents are not okay with you leaving school. (laughs) They're not really excited about that. So how do you start your career now? I think you can focus on collecting so that when you're done with school, you already have a clear path. Um, So yeah, I collected in high school and pretty much at 17, got a booth and start selling. Incredible. I want to talk about your showroom of the cloth. The antique home goods that you sell are each entirely unique, hand-woven textiles, furniture of weathered wood, wheel-thrown ceramics, layers of textures, natural colors, and sculptural shapes abound. The feeling that each piece was chosen intuitively and with purpose is palpable. Tell me about the aesthetic thread that ties all of your objects together? And then what inspires it? I wouldn't necessarily say there's an aesthetic thread. I would say there's a maker's hand thread. Mm. I'm more, um, that kind of weaves it together. The intention behind production, the intention behind making, the function behind it, you know, things that are coming from a hand with an intention that weaves it together. So it could be bright red. And if the maker is lovely and has a great sensibility and understanding, it goes next to an African antique or mid-century modern. It all depends on, you know, the intention behind the product. How do you decide or how do you decide what objects you want to collect? You know, when I first start collecting, I would pretty much collect things that could be hidden in my... Why? Why? Because I was collecting while in school. Oh, so you don't want your parents to know. (laughs) You don't want your parents to know that you were spending like your school clothes money on objects that you cannot wear to school. It became (laughs) things that were small enough to be hidden. And then as I became an adult, I realized that, oh, I can now collect things that are functional. And I immediately went to stools. (laughs) I don't know why, but immediately went to stools. And that became my obsession for a long time. And I think it just cycles. There's times that like, I am really into chairs. And then you notice that it's a heavy chair season. There's the basket season. But it really depends on where I am in my life. And if I'm entertaining a lot, 
what's the function of that entertainment? Is it like family gatherings? You know, am I doing dinners? And then from that collecting it then kind of determines what I bring into my life. How do you find the objects that you collect and sell? And then I have another question about what you decide to keep and what you decide to sell. <laughs> so first, let's talk about how you find things. So I have been doing this a long time. So a lot of the objects find me. There are people all around the United States that I work with, and they will reach out and say, hey, I just found this thing, and I know it is right up your alley, or they are objects I've been looking for for the last 15 years. So there are artists and makers and collectors around the world who are looking for those. So do a lot of people come to you and say, Tian, I have this particular hankering. I need this. Can you source it for me? Can you find it for me? Is that something that often happens in your practice? Prior to the, um, the lockdown, that happened a lot in my practice. That was how I was able to continue to collect because I would source for designers or um, companies and film sets. Um, and, you know, pretty much what happened is during, as the lockdown intensified, I looked around and I was like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with all of this stuff that I have sourced for to go to particular designers or sets? And that's, you know, pretty much how I started. <laughs> Now, what do you decide you want to keep <laughs> for yourself? This is very easy. Very, very easy. Um, when I first started collecting, I had a mentor who was very clear in his communication. And he looked me in the eye and he said, are you going to be a collector that shares or a collector that hoards? Happens a lot. And collecting, there are a lot of hoarders. And, you know, he was a hoarder. And from that second, I was like, I am going to be a collector that shares. So everything at some point comes to my life and it is used, right? It could be a teacup that I use one time in the shop. And after I have used it or after I've you know, carried it or handled it, it's for someone else. Why do you think people collect? I think people collect for many different reasons. Most often I find that my clients are collecting to belong to something that is um, that either resonates with their family or familial background or, you know, we're collecting things that just make you smile. I think there's, there's so many different reasons. I know why I collect. Tell me why. <laughs> I collect because I found early on that African-American artifacts and lives and cultures aren't necessarily shown in museums all around the United States. So if I wanted any piece of my family or any heirloom from my family, I would have to be the archivist. And that really, really inspired me to begin collecting and, you know, collecting and supporting other people, other African-American families who felt the same as I did. I recently had an experience that I wanted to share with you because I thought you might enjoy it. I, I collect a potter that's been working for the last 40 or so years. And her name is Miranda Thomas. And I've been mostly interested in her vintage pieces because they're really, really different from each other, very unique. It's a specific pattern that I'm always looking for and I'm always searching for it high and low and keep an alert up on eBay. And recently I came across a post 
where somebody's selling their entire collection of her work. Mm. And they have a collection that's probably equal in size or so to mine. And it's not so much that I want to get it because most of it is repeat of what I already have. And it's also very expensive. But I wanted, I, I'm like, I bet you I have so much in common with this person who has spent obviously a lifetime collecting the same potter that I've been collecting. Do you find that your collectors of specific items or specific kinds of items have common denominators or do you find that they're vastly different? It's a yes and but. <laughs> well, like, there's a commonality. I mean, we all have the bug, you know? And that's when I started working, you'll walk into a shop and immediately they will say, oh, you have the bug. That thing, that like thing that allows you to be an effective collector, not a hoarder. And I think there's a, a level of joy and tenacity that we share in our collection and in our relationship with object. Do you consider yourself a curator? You know, there's so many different things and I'm, I'm having a show in, in November and someone was like, oh yeah, we heard about the show you're curating. And I'm like, oh, I, I, I typically don't think about things like this. Like I'm a facilitator, whatever needs to be mm -hmm. done in order for me to showcase whatever needs to be done in order for me to get something in someone's hands. So I, I show up in many different ways. So interesting because having been to your Rockefeller Plaza store, I would say that you have a very fine, very discerning eye. And I think that's part of what is required of a curator, but perhaps you're a curator and then some, you know, a facilitator and a curator and kind of an artist, because when you bring objects together like that, you really are creating an environment for people to sort of feel enthralled by what's around them. Yes, yes, yeah. I agree with that. I, I have one last question. In many antique and vintage shops, you'll see pieces that once were functional, like a farming tool that's no longer in use, and it begins to take on a second life as a decorative piece. Do you ever feel like an object ever passes, truly passes from functional to obsolete to then purely decorative? I think it's always functional. You can have a, a car in your garage that you never drive. It's still a vehicle. <laughs> um, so I think it's always functional. I think it's a great example. Great example. I think it goes from hand to hand and you may not use it as function because you may live in the city and not require 20 teapots. Mm -hmm. um, but if you do the work, which is passing it on to someone else, it will become functional again. Tian Trice, thank you so much. Alexandra, welcome back. Now I'd like to talk with you both about collecting for the home versus the public. You're both acquiring objects for others to view, to consume, to live with, be it to learn from in a museum or to live with. And that's a huge responsibility. And Tian, I'd like to start with you. How do you deem an object significant? rather than beautiful or visually compelling. Alexandra just shared with us sort of the responsibility that the museum has in doing that. What kind of approach do you use when selecting the objects that you live with? Great questions. I would say selecting the object I live with, I'm kind of piggybacking on, on like the current time we're living in and what could benefit my life and what could benefit the people around me. 
So during the lockdown, when you had to be very selective in who you were coming in contact with, I collected the most beautiful of crockery and flatware and dining chairs because dinners were really impactful during that time. It was so important that if I was able to share space with someone for 45 minutes for a quick meal, that everything be thought of. So yeah, it like I said, it really de- it really is based on like the the climate and, and where we are in life. Alexandra, does your curatorial lens affect the way you select what objects you live with? I sort of imagine you both having homes that are sort of semi museum like, <laughs> or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have to say I think there there's a very fine line between collecting and hoarding to be I've never really been a strategic collector. You know, I think my my interest in objects has been sort of, you know, an intuitive curiosity. I take things off the street all the time. You know, that's one of the best parts of living living in New York, you know, is trash day. And you know, you can <laughs> yes. find incredible yes. treasures. Yeah, I have I have a hard time not bringing things home. My children have become really good co-conspirators and, you know, walking down the right blocks and, and picking things off the street. But I, I definitely have the privilege of, you know, looking at artists and designers as a job. So I do more research than most people, a lot of it on on eBay and auction sites, to be frank. But, uh, you know, I get to do studio visits and see chairs being made in progress. And so, you know, that exposure to design work from around the world has definitely shaped what I like to look at every day, in my surroundings. How do you, and this is really a question for you both, how do you determine an object's value? And and this could be financial, but it could also be philosophical. You know, there's sentimental value and then there's also cultural value. Do you do you think about that when you're collecting either for your museum or for your store or for yourself? I most often don't because I'm in a different position and I didn't begin my collection acquiring things that I most times knew about. You know, I acquired Eames chairs before I re- I knew what Eames, you know, was. I acquired so many things that I just thought were beautiful and could add value in my home. And then years later, you discover, sometimes after you sell it for, <laughs> for pennies. Oh, well, that breaks my mind. Well, I mean, I've lived with it. I think for me, it becomes a cultural significance, one of the things of the past that determines the value. And then with contemporary makers, I think it's based on what it's going to take to scale that particular artist. I allow the contemporary artists that I work with to really, you know, we come up with a plan for what it's going to take for them to really do this as a full-time thing. And that's how we determine their time and the value of their time. Alexandra, what about you? For me personally, I, I think a lot about memory and you know, how the object allows me to connect to an experience or a person or a conversation. Uh, so many of the things I surround myself with, I've, I've picked up at an important point in my life or on a, on a travel. You know, I really try to, to take something, even the smallest thing, um, even if it's a matchbook. My parents 
collected you know, giant, giant vessels full of matchbooks. You don't have that anymore. But each one represented an experience and a trip and a journey and a conversation. And for the, for the museum, I really try to think about why this object will matter to people and how it represents a variety of experiences and, and how in the future someone would look back to this moment and think about you know, how this object could be an access point to understanding what was going on. And having worked in a, a sector of the design industry very much about creating monetary value for objects. You know, when I was working in the design market early in my career, you know, I found that ultimately when it comes to utilitarian objects in particular, people want something that they can touch and use. And that's actually what's most important. Most design collectors are not collecting because something is going to appreciate in value. They connect because they love the thing. And um, it's meaningful in an emotional way. My next question is sort of perfectly timed, but it's quite by accident. This season, we're inviting our listeners to call in and share their anecdotes and questions. And our listener, Pedro, calling from Greenpoint, shared how his records feel like his most valuable possessions because of how they connect him with his father, who's an audiophile and a lifelong collector of rare vinyl. Do you have objects or collections that connect you to others? Is a question for you both. Tian, you want to go uh, first? Yes. Everything that's not contemporary that I have connects me to someone. Even the indigenous artisans that I work with, I'm, I feel connected to them. I've had many mentors along this journey. There's like a collection of bamboo and rattan pieces that are you know, that really showcase my time with Marilyn. There's all my teapots that are like my thing when I'm shopping with my mom. I really hyper-focused on making sure that every object I had and that I was going to share with someone um, reminded me of something from the past, you know. Alexandra, what about you? For me, I think it's cookbooks. I grew up with grandparents who spent most of their time together in the kitchen. The cookbooks are sort of a, you know, a, a conduit to material experience. You know, in order to complete some of these recipes, I need to bring cooking equipment and utensils from global cultures into the kitchen. I learn about foodways and ingredients. And, you know, I, you pick up bits of different languages, vernaculars, period values. So I, I, uh, I'm always on the lookout for vintage cookbooks. It's a really great way to sort of start exploring ways of, of making and communing around food. I have a cookbook that I have for my grandmother, who is no longer with us. And her cookbook is full of marginalia. And so I get to sort of re-experience her every time I look at her recipe for kasha varnishkas, which was one of her, her favorite dishes to make. I love just looking at it and sort of just sliding my hands across the pages, knowing that her DNA is embedded in there somehow. That's really beautiful. Tian, I wanted to ask you, how does the process of creating a piece affect an object? Does the craftsperson or manufacturer 
define an object and thus affect his story? Or once that object is sort of off and in a shop somewhere, it sort of begins a new story? I think, and this is a conversation I have here daily, I think the artists, the maker, the artisans, the indigenous communities, as they produce, there's a certain intention that their hands use in order to complete an object. But I think a true maker, a true artist, and is enjoying while they're producing, while imagining what the function could be as it goes to someone else. This is really exciting for me, and this feels like a bowl, but I can only imagine what someone in New York would use this for. Or I would hang this object this way. And then they come in the shop and they're like, wow, I love how you've hung that. I would have never thought of doing it that way. You know? We had a, a few listeners call in and share the objects that define their New York experience. Kirsten and Carol Garden shared that for her, it's the coveted subway seat nearest to the door. You can't relate. <laughs> For both of you, what are the objects that define the New York experience for you? This is a really tough one. You know, yeah, the subway comes to mind, especially now that the the subway card distributors are being phased out. I've become particularly attached mm. to those and to the yeah. interface. The subway yeah, I'm mapping. sad about that. So old I am. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm not brave enough to ride city bikes but they've become such a ubiquitous part of the urban landscape in the city. Tote bags. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, I have one. A city bench. There's nothing more oh, exciting yeah. to me about the city. As someone who grew up watching, you know, You Got Mail and, you know, all these, you know, uh, really lovely New York rom-coms. <laughs> There were always so many moments. I wonder what was happening here in 1940, you know? And I love it when there's names, like in Central Park, where people's names are on the benches. I love to imagine what their lives where were Where they like. lived. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm blocks, absolutely. I'm blocks away from the park, so that happens often. I'm just like, oh, I wonder if they lived around here. Maybe they lived in the Bronx. My New York's story is really a communal thing. It's being in, in fellowship with everyone around me and figuring out ways to truly connect. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I think that there are some universally significant objects for all New Yorkers, certainly the, the Apple yes. and the iHeart New York, which I think is just so ubiquitous now. Almost every other city and country in the world has has appropriated it in some way or another, which I know must make Long Glazer happy somewhere. Yes. My last question for you both is this. You're both not originally from New York. Has living in New York City redefined your approach to acquiring objects or appreciating objects, either professionally or personally? What I can say is I was living with my grandmother in New Jersey when I decided to start collecting. And I, you know, told her I was heading to Garden State Plaza, which is the mall in New Jersey. And I really hopped on a bus to head into the city to visit Liza Sherman's gallery. This is so awesome. So <laughs> as long as I have collected, it's been for New Yorker. It's been for New York. I've always imagined my friendships here, my client base here, you know, as a child. So 
my life is so wrapped up in this city. I mean, I, I, I don't know how to do much without thinking about it. Thank you, Alexandra. Last word is with you. I love that. I, I think that the city is such a brilliant aesthetic education, not just for galleries and museums, because we have so many of those. And, you know, you can spend your entire life seeing all of the art that's on view. But the confluence of individuality and style on the streets, um, you know, walking from neighborhood to neighborhood, you see how so many different types of people are are living. And, and I think it teaches you about yourself and opens the door to uh, an understanding and love of objects that, you know, paint a picture about what life could be. And, and so I have that cinematic experience of New York City where I, I, feel, I feel like a movie walking down the street and that's never gotten old for me. And so I, I'm absolutely shaped by, by this city. I can't, I can't imagine living anywhere else. I'm sorry to my parents in Miami who are probably sad that I'm not coming back. But. Absolutely, absolutely understand and couldn't agree more. Thank you for joining us today on NYC by Designs the Mic. A very, very special thank you to our guests, Alexandra Cunningham-Cameron and Tian Trice for sharing their knowledge and insight. Join me next month to talk even more design on the mic. Follow at NYC by Design on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And please subscribe to the newsletter for the latest in New York City design. Special thanks to the Sandow Design Group podcast production team, Hannah Biddy, Maya Byram, Cecilia Vidal, Wise Grisette, and Samantha Sager. Thank you for listening. And now to close the episode, let's hear a short live on the bench interview that was recorded at Spiral of Life, an adaptive seating installation in the Dumbo waterfront designed by Kiki Kudikova, made from Caesar stone quartz in celebration of this special collaboration between NYC by Design and Caesar Stone, I sat down with local creative people at the installation site to explore how nature inspires their work. Now let's hear my conversation with the Spiral of Life designer herself, Kiki Kudakova. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I'm here with the artist Kiki Kudakova to talk about this remarkable sculpture that she designed on the Brooklyn waterfront. Hi, Kiki. Hi. How are you? I'm very well. This is amazing. Thank Tell me you. all about it. How did you make this? What was the inspiration? Tell me as much as you can about this wonderful sculpture. Um, well, the main inspiration, it was a competition by NYC by Design, and uh, I was inspired by this whole neighborhood, like the Dumbo waterfront, such a bustling, vibrant area full of tourism people, and also the river, which is right next to it. And I think that's something that shaped the, the fluid shape of this bench. What are the materials? Because it's sort of both soft and hard at the same time. Yeah, so this is the newest Caesar Stone outdoor collection. And uh, this was something that was donated uh, to the uh, competition and uh, I was really excited to work with this uh, and I'm so happy like we could experiment and create something like really 3D out of a 2D material. So, What is it like for you to be interacting with an object that you've designed right under the Brooklyn Bridge? Yeah, it's uh, super exciting. Uh, 
you know, as a designer, you always have an idea in your head. And then when it becomes reality and you can sit on it right under the bridge, it's, it's an amazing feeling. So it brings me a lot of joy. What does Spiral of Life mean to you? That's what you've called it, Spiral of yeah. Life. And the Spiral of Life has gone viral to a degree. <laughs> so, so talk about the name and, and what it means. Yeah. Uh, spiral for me, uh, I designed this during pandemic and the spiral means a rebirth or kind of a new evolution as we're coming out. I wanted to give people a symbol of hope and uh, some sort of new beginning. That's, that's why it's called Spiral. Talk about some of the other public places you like to hang out in. What are some of your favorites? I love the Noguchi Museum. It's, uh, I live in Greenpoint, so it's just like 15 minutes away from my house. I bike there and like, I hang out in the garden and it's like transporting you to Japan right away. Uh, I love going to the MoMA. Uh, or also the Little Island by Thomas mm, Hederwig is beautiful. Right? Yeah, yeah. One of the most beautiful additions to Absolutely. New York City. Yeah. What is your favorite place to connect with others? Um, my studio is right here in the Navy Arts, uh, in New Lab. Uh, and I love being there. There's so many creatives, a lot of people involved in tech and design. So that's perfect place for networking. I, it's, it's just a great place to be. Also, another place I like, I love music, so uh, there's a radio called Lo The Lot Radio. It's in the old parking lot uh, and the radio is in a shipping container. It's in Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and it's an outdoor space where I like to meet friends and listen to music. So that's, those are the two places I like to connect. Yeah. Kiki, what is one word you would use to describe the spiral of life? Uh, I would say freedom. Thank you. Thank you so much for making this wonderful place for people to gather and talk and connect. Thank you, Debbie.